Welcome to the Evolve Pod, brought to you by Evolve Wellbeing Group. Hey everybody and welcome back to the next episode of the Evolve Pod. Um, everybody's experiencing a lot of snow and a lot of ice at the moment. It's quite befitting that this week I've got my my guest today who's going to talk to us about some really interesting things that she's been through in, in the elite sporting world. And my guest is Amy Williams, MBE, the uh, 2010 gold medal winner at the Skeleton Bob at the Vancouver Games. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. It's not often you get to talk to a gold medal Olymp- Olympian. Uh, and to kind of get into your sort of mindset but Amy how are you doing thanks for coming on the pod I'm all right thank you yeah I feel uh, happy that a little bit of snow is falling (laughs) yeah no it's good isn't it and you know I don't want to talk about lockdown too much but it's a good distraction you know I know you've got kids I've got kids it's a nice distraction when it starts to snow something different to do with the children isn't it exactly yeah they love it they get so excited watching it out through the window and yeah, yeah, can't wait to get out there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I kind of, I brought it up already with with the whole lockdown thing. I've, I've traditionally been starting the podcast by asking people how they found lockdown, but with you, I'd like to ask you a slightly different question. Obviously, you know, people people know about your background, and we're going to get into that in terms of the the elite sport. But if you were an Olympian or, or an Olympic athlete currently, and you were training towards the Olympics in the middle of your Olympic cycle, and you know, this year's an Olympian Olympic year. Mm-hmm. How would you feel with all the uncertainty at the moment that's going on? How would that make you feel as an athlete? I guess there's there's a lot for everybody to take on, but as an athlete, there must be even more pressure. It is. Yeah. I mean, I I do feel really sorry for them. I feel really sorry. Um, But I mean, straight away, they just have to park it pretty much. You know, the whole world is in this scenario. And, you know, my, my biggest mantra throughout my career was control the controllables. You cannot control it. You cannot control when, you know, the government are going to let the gyms open or when they're going to shut it. So you can't focus on it. So I'd be straight away telling them, look, park it, get the emotions aside. You're annoyed, you're angry, you're, you know, whatever. But everyone's in the same boat. So then what can you do to make the best out of that opportunity? And I think um, I, I think the world's realized, especially in the fitness world, you don't need gyms with all these tons of equipment. And. Yes, up to a point. I mean, if you're Sir Chris Hoy, who is, you know, squatting 250 (laughs) plus kilos, you clearly need a gym with all that weight. But on the flip side, even with my clients, I've taken online with my PT, you know, a good band, a glute band, some bands and like one set of dumbbells. You could do the most incredible workout and get just as good burn um, going through those muscles. So, yeah, I think for the Olympic athletes, it's tough. It's hard. It's very unknown. But they, like anything, have to stick to their goals, stick to those points of feeling like they're achieving something um, and just stay positive, you know, knowing that everyone else is in the same boat. Definitely. It's interesting, your mantra there about controlling the controllables and letting the uncontrollables go. It's, I think it's one, one, a theme of this year or the last 12 months is, is, is for everyone to have focused on what is outside of our control. And I think it's really important to focus on that and to remember that we can, can only control what we can control yeah. and to really focus on that, whether we're Olympic athletes or not. I, yeah. I can't imagine there's many Olympic athletes listening to this, but it's really important to take that mantra on board. Thank, thank, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really interesting. So for you, where did it all start? Where did this journey to become, you know, Amy Williams, gold medalist. Where where did it all start with 
you know did you get into sports at a young age were you encouraged to do sports by family and school where, where did that journey begin oh it's really hard to pinpoint anything that's really specific I think as a family we grew up I've got a twin sister I've got an older brother we were very active you know every Sunday after Sunday lunch was off for a walk and dad's walks could be one hour or five hours you never knew you know the kind of typical oh we're a bit lost but we're not um and I think family holidays were always going around Cornwall Devon youth hosteling you know it was walking all the time it was staying in that different youth hostel or 50p a night type of thing you know so that was very much in our makeup of being outdoorsy we we didn't grow up with a tv so we weren't you know we were just yeah outside kids in the garden playing it wild so whether that was kind of inbuilt you know when you're growing up and then I think with school we were definitely the you know I was definitely one of the kids that did everything um we kind of did every sport possible then around that kind of teenage years it was joining the athletics club you know that starts off as a Tuesday night then it goes off into a when a Thursday night and then all of a sudden you're you're doing the Sunday mornings because they're the hill runs and it was like my 400 meter kind of phase and actually they were the toughest sessions of the week was the was the hill runs and I remember then never being able to eat my Sunday lunch you know it was my, my <laughs> lunch on a plate and I was still in that kind of like oh if it was it I can't eat like, I was eating several hours later when I finally yeah. felt like I could I mean if yeah. anyone knows you know that feeling and yeah and I think it just kind of grew and grew um and then, I mean, my aim, yeah, was at that point, I just want to be the best I can doing 400. It's not like I had this Olympic aim. Mm-hmm. And I think actually it became quite clear. I had really bad shin splints and compartments in okay. shins. And it kind of got to that point of, hang on, we might have to, well, they operate, they slice down your shins and all sorts of weird yeah. things. Um, yeah. So I kind of took time out, a big chunk of time out. And, and actually, weirdly, that's when I kind of found skeleton as well in that I just got talking to some people in the gym. They were skeleton bobsleigh athletes heading off to this brand newly built skeleton start track, bobsleigh start track um, at the University of Bath, where I live. And yeah, I just kind of invited myself along and um, it was sort of still that sprint part of it, that transition across. And um, yeah, in one sense, the rest is history. I, I went out and joined an army ice camp as it happened. That was the only way to get into the winter sports, paid my way, saved up, you know, all the money that I had to my name, and off I went and I just kind of like went for it, just this leap of faith into this unknown sport. Um, and yeah, I think once I kind of realized, hmm, hang on, there's a bit of an empty gap here. It was straight after the Salt Lake City Games 2002. There's always a bit of a falling out of athletes after every Olympic cycle. You know, there's a bit of a hole. OK, I could get into this sport and I reckon, you know, get close to that top representing the country pretty quick. That's I can see a really nice link between what you talked about is in about your childhood and going off on all these adventures and being outside and, mm-hmm. you know, taking the opportunities because they're there and kind of having that almost sort of um, inbuilt in your sort of almost your psyche mm-hmm. to then taking that opportunity, that leap of faith to go on to that army ice camp to to go and have a go. You know, there's I don't think there's many people that would probably sit there and go, do you know what? I'm going to go and kind of have a go at that throw everything I've got it and see what happens. Yeah. And that you know, yeah, that's a huge leap of faith. And there, there must have been some real kind of vision and some ambition there to, from the beginning to get you to that point. And also yeah, spot the opportunity yeah. as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, I mean, if people ask, oh, my parents, you know, 
was I a competitive child? No. I mean, yeah, I have a twin sister, as you as you know, yeah, you know yeah. my sister well. You know, it's like actually we were never competitive at school. We were in different subjects. She was a lot more switched on and brainier than me. So she was in the better set, you know, like we never competed against each other. But um, my parents would always say that I, I just wanted to do the best that I could do. You know, as a child, like I never wanted to get told off. I never wanted to be like, you know, um, naughty. So I always wanted to do my very best. Um, and it, I think it's true, however sort of silly and ironic that is. You don't want to ever give up on yourself until you feel like you've done the best job. And obviously, if something completely doesn't take your passion, I just walk away from it. But if there's that kind of thing inside of you, like, I could be really good at this. I actually enjoy it or I enjoy the process or I loved that physical side of it, the training, the going in the gym. Can I lift a little heavier? Can I squat a bit heavier? Can I do this a little bit more? And I think every day, you know, 1%, they just add up until you suddenly realize actually I could aim really, really high here. I'm aiming for the Olympics. I'm aiming for a medal. So then my, so my mind's then leading on to kind of what, what life is like for an elite athlete or a young elite athlete. So how, how old were you back at, at that point then when you sort of took that leap of faith? Yeah, so 2002, I mean, I'm terrible at maths and numbers and probably someone called me. I was about sort of 17, 17, 18. In fact, okay. yeah, I remember having my 18th birthday in Austria mm-hmm. um, with the rest of the team and we found a bottle of glue vine. Oh, disgusting <laughs> drink. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the one and only times I probably drank a little bit too much and we really shouldn't have. But, yeah, this bottle of glue vine was there and we kind of shared it out between a few of us. Never touched the stuff since. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. But what, what sort of pressures were you under then as, a, as, a, as an elite athlete at, at that sort of age? Because if I mm. reflect back to when I was 17, 18, very impressionable, think you know it all, but actually, you know, you know I knew nothing. Um and you know, I didn't have that. That at the age of seventeen or eighteen, I didn't have the vision that you had of. There's a spot here that I could really aim high for. I was kind of just messing around, really. But yeah, what what sort of pressures was it that did you have to make a lot of sacrifices and yeah, and that kind of thing? I, I think I mean sacrifices almost started straight away because the only reason I got that money to go on that ice camp was um, I joined. Well, I got a place at Bath University to do a degree. And I was going to go off and do an art degree because I was actually doing an art foundation course at the time. But I realized, well, that was going to be Edinburgh that I was probably going to specialize and go off to. So I I needed to change the choices to stay in Bath, which is where the sport was. And I needed that student loan because it was the student loan that paid for that ice camp. So already I was like, tick, tick, tick. I have to make these certain decisions um, to help me. So I missed Freshers Week. So, you know, kind of the coolest thing about going to university, isn't it, is that freshers week. I missed that because I was out on this ice camp. And I think it soon became clear that almost, you know, these decisions were already kind of, I've got one chance. You're only young once. I can't do this sport when I'm 40 or 50. Like, I have to do it now. So I think it was quite tough because you have the summer months back at home doing all your solid um, physical side of the training. And then your winter months, you were literally away for pretty much five, six months out of the suitcase saying goodbye to your friends. So already it's such a massive sacrifice at that young age um, and really dedication to even spend that amount of time away from home, away from family, traveling. And yeah, it was tough, really tough. Um, It's... um, it already kind of made it, well, hang on, if I'm going to be away for this long and missing everything back at home, 
I've got to give it my all. I'm not just going to dilly dally with this sport. I have to give it my all. Otherwise, what's the point? Why am I kind of yeah. being sad and miserable and, and missing out on my friends? Um, I mean, I quit the university degree after a year because I was like, <laughs> oh, stuff this. I, I can't be bothered to do all this when I'm at that point. Like, yeah, come on, give it your shot. Give everything into skeleton. And like you've yeah. just got to give it your all and oh I can do that degree another time and I did you know I picked it up a few years later and did a part-time sports performance degree so I didn't bother with the dissertation but you know I kind of yeah you've got to pick and choose and I, I think it really became clear give it your all a hundred percent or you'll never know like you can't dilly-dally with it you you've got to give it everything yeah I mean I can't think of any sports person who's hit the levels that you've hit who hasn't made those sort of sacrifices and and also being at peace with that because sometimes people make the sacrifices and it doesn't sit comfortably well with them and that's a personal choice mm-hmm. and I think to kind of I don't know would would it be fair to say that the sacrifices that you made to get to achieve what you've achieved were okay because you achieved what you achieved you pushed yourself that far and drove, drove yourself yeah. that far that actually the trade-off you, that's fine yeah and I think when you're younger you know in that sense you have no responsibilities yeah. you know you don't have a family, you don't have a husband or wife, you don't have kids. Uh, you know, I, well, when I first started, you know, I had a boyfriend back at home. And after a few years, obviously, that, that ended. And then actually, I dated foreigners as it happened. I was always with um, a, a, a bobsay athlete who happened to, you know, I was with a German guy for three years. I was then with a Czech guy for nearly four years. And actually, you spent more of your time almost away with these people, like-minded people who were going through the same thing as you um so yeah the kind of sacrifices shifted um obviously then it got a bit scary when okay I'm either I I lived at home I moved back in with my parents to be able to save money obviously I'd quit the degree at that time um so I wasn't in the university halls I moved back home that enabled me to save money um which I guess is a bit different in that early 20s mid 20s to be back with your parents but you know, I had to do it. And the fact that you weren't even there for half the year, you weren't going to waste rent somewhere. Um, Yeah. And then I guess, you know, when you did finally move out and and own your own place, the pressure then to have to do well, because you had to perform, you had to get the results to be able to get that individual like lottery funding, you you know, you had to do that to be able to physically pay your bills, pay your mortgage. So that's when the real pressures came on, because you did then have responsibility to yourself um you know and everything around you to keep being an athlete I think that's the unglamorous side that people don't really see or necessarily take into account when they look at a sports person or an elite person such as yourself in that environment where yes when it goes really well you get that exposure you get that kind of you know the well done the pat on the back from a lot of people but you know the graft that you have to put in not for the recognition but for the survival to pay your bills you know it's a job at the end of the day isn't it okay and I think that's how a lot of us see it actually is you're just doing your day job it's a kind of strange day job that you don't get paid to do (laughs) but on the flip side you you have to perform every day because yeah if, if you don't get those results we had one race a year the world championships to be able to get funding from so you had to get your position in our British Championships, so even get onto the World Cup team. Only then when you were on the World Cup team did you have to perform in every race to be able to qualify yourself for those world champs. 
And then at those world champs, back in my day, it might have changed now. You had to get either top 12, a top eight or a top three position to get your three different levels of lottery funding. You know, and it wasn't a huge amount. Um, I, I think it was something like £12,000 a year for your C funding, which, you know, wouldn't even cover your rent, you know, or anything like that. So it, it was, you know, that was really, yeah. When you say about every day, every second, everything goes into it, it really did, you know, it really did matter. I'd be really, I'd be really interested to, you know, how everybody goes, oh, I'd love to do what you do. Uh, I bet you probably hear that quite often. I'd love to have been yeah. through what you've been through. But actually, when you put it like that, how many of us would actually like to be in that position? I don't know. It's because mm-hmm. it, imagine, I imagine it's a hell of a lot of pressure. It quite, is. Quite uh, uh, yeah. Obviously, it's fun. You're doing something you're really passionate about and something really cool. But there must be kind of like this black and white. So when you're actually on the on the ice and training or in the gym and focused on that training, you must that must be the kind of the, the side that really drives you. But then also when you're at home and you're potentially worrying about these things, that must be quite stressful. Yeah, I think that you just said the black and white, and I, I was very blinkered. Um, I, I missed out on the Turin Olympics in 2006. We only had one place for a, a girl. That's all we qualified. You know, we were coming on as a team. I was reserve. Um, and I think it was almost from there, it was a massive turning point of, you know, this passion, this fire was in my belly to never miss an Olympic Games, to make sure in four years time, almost to the day, you know, was that Vancouver race. And we knew we would pretty much qualify two girls by that point. I think we qualified three men. You know, so I really knew I had that tangible four years to the day. I am going to have my feet on that start line. And and for me, it was, it was blinkers went on. You know, it was black and white, everyday decisions. Will this help me get to go? Yes or no. And you live your life by a yes or no. It can be quite easy. You know, your gut tells you straight away, no, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to be in bed at half past nine every single night. I am not going to eat that chocolate cake. I am not going to drink <laughs> that large glass of wine. You know, I didn't have alcohol for four years. I didn't drink or eat anything that was bad for me. So, you know, it, it was all those decisions was really, yeah, black and white. Yes, no. OK, I'm not going to do it. And actually it became quite, you could argue, a simple way of living because you really stripped everything away into this very sort of selfish self-centered you know athletes have to be so selfish to themselves to be so driven to be able to um do what they need to do every day to get the very best out of themselves and that, and that is dedication isn't it that that is the epitome of dedication you know yeah. and, and being being strict and and seeing what you can do by you know cutting out anything that's gonna gonna be a bad decision and just yeah. moving on from that yeah and I think that it is tough I mean relationships friendships around you you know at that point I groups of friends were athletes but you know they might have still gone out partied one or two times a week still in that kind of student lifestyle and you know they saw me disappear with my orange juice at nine o'clock so I could still be in bed at half nine and they barely got to well actually they were still normally in a house party at that point and before they'd even got to the town I was heading off back home and I think, you know, afterwards, a few of them said, well, we can see now why you did that. And maybe if we buckled up a little bit more, we could achieve better. Or, you know, again, with relationships and stuff, you've got to really be around people that totally understand you and, you know, aren't going to pressurise you into trying to do different things because, you know, that's not useful or helpful. But you said uh, you said a few minutes ago about, you know, you only live once, you're only young once, you've only got this one opportunity. 
I think that kind of speaks volumes about your mindset and dedication towards that opportunity. Because, mm-hmm. you know, again, I relate back to when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, didn't really think about any opportunity at that age. Just kind of like, oh, I'm young. I think I know it all. I'm just going to have fun. Whereas you've obviously taken that very different mindset towards getting getting your goals set and absolutely 100 percent focusing on that but that so yeah. you, you explained the kind of transition from athletics into skeleton bob but what was it so you had that conversation with those people in the gym the, the skeleton athletes in the gym what was it that kind of turned you on to skeleton what was it that you thought do you know what that sounds that sounds awesome i really want to have a crack at that yeah um well actually it was funny because like i said i was sort of I was at art college when I, you know, got chatting with these people. I remember watching the Salt Lake City Games up in the sports cafe at the university with this group of skeleton athletes. And I remember watching a race, a girl called Alex Coomber, who was in the RAF, got a bronze medal, you know, for Great Britain. But it, at that moment in time, it, it never, ever occurred to me, oh, my goodness, that's a sport I'm going to do. It's really weird. It, I, I watched it, but that was it. And it was only then later on, a few months later, that I was like, OK, so what is it what you do? Oh, OK, so you have got this push track. Let's give it a go. But actually, at the same time, which I always forget to kind of tell people, very parallel to this, I was actually trying out for modern pentathlon. So modern pentathlon is where you've got your shooting, fencing, running, riding, swimming, five disciplines. And that's based, the National Training Centre is based at the University of Bath. And they are, they became all my closest friends, actually, until this day. It's all the modern pentathletes who are good friends of mine. So I actually started training with them. Um, swimming, admittedly, I found really hard. I had done swimming as a, as a kid, but... Crikey, when you spent your life running, I, I just found it really difficult. Uh, yeah. So I did find that hard. The running element, yeah, I got, but you know, that kind of shin splint problem was still sort of there when it came to the long distance. Um, shooting, it was pistol shooting. I picked up straight away, almost getting nines and tens straight away. So that kind of I was quite a natural fencing, you know, I only got to do kind of more drills, but again, picked it up really quick. And riding was something that actually was very lucky. I kind of almost taught myself to ride by these horses in the field behind the back garden. Again, I kind of looked after other people's horses. This is the wild child of me. Yeah, looked after other people's horses for kind of like five, six, seven, eight years of my life and actually only stopped that the more I did skeleton because obviously I couldn't look after them. So actually all those elements and they wanted to pop me onto um, that C-level lottery funding straight away because they saw this talent. It was then the Sydney Olympics had just happened as well in that 2000. Um, But the reason I chose skeleton after that initial two weeks of army ice camp is because, like I said, there was this sort of empty hole of people retiring out. So there was this sort of empty gap, especially in the women's field, that I realised, hang on, I could get to that top, compete for Great Britain a lot quicker. Whereas in that modern pentathlon, the Sydney Olympics had just happened. We'd won, what, two, two medals at those games with the females, all based at the university. And there was still a really good other group of girls so even though I was like being offered lottery money straight away to get onto the team and the development team actually it would have taken me longer to get to that top and that was it that was the decision made I could get a lot representing my country a lot quicker if I did skeleton and that was it 
I mean, the modern metathlon coach, even to this day, he always has a cheeky like, when are you going to come back? When are you going to come back? It's a sort of like in-house joke. But yeah, and there you are. The blinkers went on almost then, you could argue, that black and white. Can I get better in this sport or that sport? Which one? I don't know why else I kind of chose it apart from that answer, to be honest. That's really cool. Yeah, it's like, that's my dream. How can I facilitate it, basically? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. yeah. Nice. And that was because then, again, I imagine there'd be a lot of athletes who would be offered the funding, given the pressures we've talked about previously, would naturally go towards the safety of having the funding for, yeah. what, for what that funding can do for them, rather than potentially keep keep the focus on the goal. And I guess that might be the difference between, you know, someone who gets to the very, very, very top and someone who gets to elite but doesn't quite make it that next step, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, we all know that money funding, you need it. You need it as an athlete. Of course you do. You need to pay your bills. You need to put food on your plate, et cetera. But actually, I think, well, especially in a lot of Olympic sports, as particularly the ice ones, you're not in it for the money. You know, we, we at that point, we've got no prize money, no nothing. You know, you're pretty much on the red all the time. And um, But I think that's the thing, that the passion and the drive doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from those paychecks. It doesn't come from sponsorship deals, because I didn't have any. You know, it actually comes from a real drive and passion from within you. And I always think, oh, crikey, take away the footballers' money, take away any of the big sports or the money, take it away from them and then see if they've got that real heart and passion and that, um, you know, that pure love to become better. Um, nothing to do with the money. Um, so, yeah, I think, y- yeah, it, you take away some of those different things and, and mm. see what's really real inside of you. Well, I think that's that's testament to the types of athletes that do take up these sports where it's not about the money it is essentially about the drive and the passion and the ambition but then so so what's it like you're standing at the top of a of a, of a run you're ready to go and you know not necessarily the olympics or training but what, what's it like to sort of slide face first very fast down an ice chute i mean that must be i've never done it i've never come close to doing it you know i've done a snowboard that's probably the closest i can get to it but it must be this crazy mix of fear, adrenaline, um, pure childish joy. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I've never done it. What's it like? To, I mean, what speeds do you get up to coming down there? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, the emotions are everything you've you've even said, you know, uh, first few times it's, it's the fear, the unknown, uh, the, the speed, the adrenaline, that rush, that buzz. Um, but very uncomfortableness, you know, even as you're going down. I mean, it's, yeah, it's freezing cold. Uh, you've got the wind rushing through across your visor, across your chin, your your neck, if it's really super cold. Um, there's no breaks. So once you're on, that's it. You know, it's a real leap of faith. I mean, when you begin, you, you, you start from halfway, you lie on the sled and someone literally just trickles you off. So it's very different. And then you just build up those corners. Obviously, the speed builds up with it until you're finally at the top of a track. Again, still lying on the sled. Someone would just trickle you off. And obviously, then eventually you're sprinting flat out, which adds in a lot more element of that speed. Um, I remember the very first time, oh, it was like being in a washing machine. You're trying (laughs) to just count the corners and you can't even count your loss. They come at you so quick. Uh, you're battering against the sides, hitting one side, you're then fighting against it. So then you hit the other side. Oh, it's horrific. Um, black and blue. 
you know, I really? think I bit the end a little bit of my tongue off, like horrible. I remember crying, like being in such shock. <laughs> um, but because I was on this army ice camp, I was like, no, no, like there's big beefy bobsleigh girls here. Like I can't look like this little weedy skeleton wimp of a, you know, civilian athlete, you know, not being in the army. So I, you know, that's what just kept me going. Like, no, right. I don't want to hit all those walls of, you know, you're learning about the sport. Um, yeah. I mean, the top speeds, 142 143 kilometers per hour so it's around you know that 90 plus miles per hour 90 miles an hour yeah average most tracks you get to maybe about 80 every track's very unique and different imagine your formula one tracks you know they're very slightly different they're all left and right corners but they're all slightly different um some are very big g-force four or five g's of pressure onto your body for that split second some are a lot more gentle, some are smaller corners, some are huge. I mean, if you stood next to a corner, you could be almost two meters high, you know, being pushed into that ice with that G-force pushing you on. So, yeah, there's a lot to kind of deal with. So that's when for us, it's our peripheral vision comes into um, all your senses. You're listening to your to the sound of the ice with the runners on the ice, whether you're skidding, you hear the onto the ice. Your, your head is literally pushed onto the ice. So you might hear your visor <laughs> yeah, as you're going yeah. down. You're then feeling the pressure on your body. So you're feeling and working as to when you need to steer that sled and getting the steering correct. You might need to drop a toe. When you come out of that corner, you're looking straight away. Where am I? Where's the next corner? How do I need to go in? Bit to the left, lip, bit to the right. Trying to do those really quick steers and adjustments to be able to get in. I mean, yeah. And then before you know it, between the tracks are between 14 and 19 corners about 50 seconds of your life has disappeared and you're at the track that's amazing to oh uh, i need to gather my words a bit listening to you talk <laughs> about that because in my while you were talking now i had this vision of of you know watching you come down come down this ice chute on the skeleton and, and as you know like if you watch a surfer a snowboarder a footballer whatever if you, if you see someone who does something exceptionally well they make it look so easy and so smooth yeah. and so flow. And so when you're watching, you know, someone like yourself come down on that skeleton bob, all you see is essentially is that person just lying there on the bob coming down as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you talked about there about the rattling of the visor, suddenly then, whoa, okay, for that person there, there's so much going on. They're not, you know, which is obviously there, but to actually hear mm. it from you, there's so much going on and all this peripheral vision, et cetera. That's really interesting. I, I think like, I always think like when you watch at an Olympics, one of my favorite things to watch is the 110 meter hurdles, the men's hurdles or the female. When you watch them, they're all lining up. And I mean, Colin Jackson was the most beautiful person to watch. I always found it fascinating watching him. And you've got that camera angle, haven't you? That yeah. you've got the two, one to the side yeah, and yeah. one like, tunnel vision in front. And it was so smooth. It was so perfect. Timing perfect. You know, he never hit a hurdle. Absolutely amazing. And then obviously you watch the person that might get it wrong, might stumble in over themselves. Can they get over the next hurdle? You know, and it all kind of goes wrong for them. And I think it's sort of the same, isn't it? You know, even a hundred meter race, you saying, but you know, everyone looks so smooth. Everyone looks perfect. They all come up together. And then you might go and watch a little kiddies race or something and see the difference. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's the same for us. Unless you put into YouTube skeleton crashes <laughs> and you suddenly realize how horrific it is or how out of control it is. 
And that, that track in Vancouver, I mean, it was so tough. Anyone who'd never been on a sled would probably crash in corner one, literally, because the design of it was so whipping you around. It could flip you over. You were up to 60 miles per hour out of corner three. You know, the, the, the speed and the way that the corners were, you had to get the steers precisely right. And when we're talking like inches, a few inches too early, too late, you'd miss the steer. And that's all at such fast speeds. So, yeah, I think it's really true. You need to kind of like almost watch a very beginner go down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> watch the crashes and see how bad it really can be. And yeah. then you realize actually, yeah, at the Olympics, you watch it and you think, oh, that's really easy. They're just lying on the sled and not really doing anything. Yeah. But, yeah, we're probably doing three or four steers working through our body, you know, the amount of things you're thinking about all the time. I mean, you're totally exhausted at the end of it. You're, you, we only go down two, two runs a day. That's it, because it, it, it's enough. You know, that third run, concentration's gone. Yeah. And if, you, if you're gone, that's when you'll crash. So before we get into 2010 and, and that Vancouver, the Vancouver Games, we, you've brought it up a couple of times in that last little, little chat there about crashing. So, you, you know, you're going up to 90 miles an hour down an ice chute. The only bit of body protection that I can see you would wear is a helmet. Mm-hmm. There's a high risk of quite severe danger if something were to go wrong. As an athlete or even as a human being, how did you, you may not be able to answer this, but how did you park that risk to, to then focus into the job you needed to do to win? Not yeah. not just at the Olympics, but just in general as, as a sport. Because, you know, I, I think of some of the things I've done previously, you know, um, I, I get it with cycling when, when I'm going down a, a steep a steep road hill these days, you know, particularly the state mm-hmm. of the roads in the UK. I'm yeah. like, if I come off now, like this is going to be chaos. Uh, yeah. And I, 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 these days I do have a bit more kind of struggle with that, as in I will tend to back off now. Whether that's because I'm older and more responsibility, I don't know. But as an as an elite athlete, is, if there's any information that you've got there on how how you manage to kind of park that risk and yeah. and focus on the job in hand. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough one. And I mean, I took up cycling a few years ago, and I'm petrified of going downhill on a bike. So there you are. That's quite ironic, you know. Downhill on my sled, and actually because I'm closer to the ground, I feel so much safer me up upright on a bike going downhill and like you say your thought process is going through all the things if there's a pothole if a car door opens if any of these things happen that your injuries are going to be horrific so you're right I mean I'm deadly slow I'm like brakes on don't go far (laughs) and then I'm like having to like try and speed up like to catch everyone up because I don't have the guts to go for it and I think yeah in the sport I guess that the speed side of it just grows with you so so over the years and I mean to be fair over a winter season so when you first get on that sled it's September October you've not been on it for six months that speed it, it hits you it is so fast and then over the next few days your reactions get quicker so obviously it feels like you're going slower but actually you're going faster because your times are getting faster so that kind of grows with you and you it just becomes part of the sport you don't even think about the speed when you crash when you hit a wall um I mean obviously as you get better and better you learn what it feels like when you're about to crash probably similar on a bike you're like 
oh, how front wheel or whatever, you, you can suddenly learn, can you get out of that crash before it's happened? Um, so that's one thing. You learn how to have those safety steers, whack the feet out for us, try and, you know, do whatever you might need to do. Um, but yeah, you're right. When you do crash, yeah, it, it, it can be a shock because you didn't think it was going to happen or it all happens in this slow motion and yeah we're sliding on our back you might have let go of the sled by accident but you learn to crash with the sled you you keep hold of the sled then you might be able to flip back over at the end of another corner so you might be able to recover although you clearly that's it at the end of your race or run that's um, called styling it out isn't it if you yeah trying to see, you always <laughs> want to learn to try and hold on to the sled because yeah. i mean for what, if your sled goes down I and mean, it can get so damaged on the way down because it's doing its own thing it will find its way to the bottom don't get me wrong but you want to try and keep hold of it just so that you have less work to do on your sled yeah. um and just it's better um but it's really hard that that mind over matter the fear um there's one corner in Sam Moritz on the track the only natural track in the world they make up the corners every year from blocks of ice from the from the frozen lake in Sam Moritz one corner the horseshoe corner and it literally is the shape of a horseshoe you've got this long sort of 60 meter tunnel to go into it with the walls really super high really narrow it is literally like going into this like tunnel pit with this massive corner at the end but you don't even see the corner because it's the way and how um steep the bend is and you had to get this massive height in the corner and then steer the sled at precisely the right time to get the speed out to be able to come out clean without hitting the inside wall when you came out and I don't know why my sled and me we just couldn't get out of this corner and I crashed nearly every time and I did once have such a bad crash I smashed the whole front of my helmet up my um my whole um sled got bent it was just horrific um so yeah it, it's really really hard but you know, you, it's that constant, I'm not going to let this track beat me. I'm not going to let it beat me. I've got to just keep going. I've got to find a way of how, you know, I can keep going. Yeah, that's a, yeah. You, I suppose if, you, if that, going back to the the original, you know, you, you had your heart and your focus set on this goal, crash or no crash, the goal's yeah. still the same, isn't it? So you get back on and have another go. Exactly. Yeah. So then 2010 Vancouver, let, let's get into this. So let's, how, how did that kind of, because um, I assume you went through the qualification to get, you know, once you're at the Olympics, the qualification races to, to make it to the finals. And yeah. then talk us through that, the finals process and how that kind of felt. Because I remember I've spoken to you about this before. And one of the things I've taken away from it is the clarity that you had like your memories seem to be very vivid whereas a lot of people in that scenario don't really like you, you you know you speak to or you listen to world cup winners and they say i don't really remember any of it it's all a big blur but you seem to be the opposite yeah i mean it was a total total blur and on the flip side it wasn't you're kind of in that real um like you say that complete headspace you're only focusing on the things that you need only focusing on those certain um the thoughts that will help you um so yeah it's um 
it's I guess that's the years of um, practice, the years of getting to that certain point, the trial and error. You don't always get it right. And I think, um, yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. You, you suddenly realize, hang on a minute. I can only focus on these good things, control the controllables. I can only do what I need to do at these certain points in time um, and everything else just don't think about that's wasted energy and it took me a long 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 time um to get to the point of not focusing on the other athletes not focusing on the other, um people around and that took a long long time and I only got that um at the Olympics um and yeah it didn't happen overnight it it, it, it took a lot of process with a sports psychologist to really, really help me get to that point. Um, yeah, and it's kind of one of my biggest tips to, um, to, to, to pass on to other athletes that you do need to focus on other people because that's how you learn, you know, watching their technique for us, watching them slide down the track. What are they doing? Where can I learn from it? But only up to a point. And when it came to the Olympics, I really let my coaches do that side um, because for me, it was it was unhelpful. I just wanted to focus on me. OK, coach, tell me what I need to do in what corners and I'll do it. I'll change that steer. I trust you 100 percent for this time. I don't need to watch all those other girls. because I, I don't know what I, I don't want to see what they're doing. I'm focusing only on me. But, you know, that took years and years and years to know what worked well for me. Again, that's controlling the controllables because you can't control what the other girls do, can you? You can't control the quality no. of the runs they put down. So no. it's about controlling what you can do and getting the absolute maximal performance out of your own ability. Yeah, then, and there's that quote, isn't there, you know, about making your boat go faster. Can't remember whoever said that quote, but it really was like, can you can only make yourself go faster. You can only make you on your bike, me on my sled. I'm the only one who controls it to go faster. So, you know, there really is that kind of very internal, I'm standing on the start line, I'm lying on the sled, I'm sprinting as fast as I can. My thoughts and my process is going to get me to the bottom as fast as possible. So what did it feel like at the, your, at the very last run of the Vancouver Games for you, standing at the top? I don't know. There must have been a lot of people around there must have been a hell of a lot of buzz there must have been a lot of external kind of um stimulus stimulation how did you block that all out I mean how did you feel oh I mean it's one of those things that if only I could go back in the genie in the lamp and sort of like <laughs> kind of relive it because it's so funny like how you forget you know, I didn't, biggest regret is not writing a diary, is not writing all this down because you do so kind of, I guess, black, you know, block everything out. And, you know, I do remember standing on that, the very last run. So I'm in our sport, the Olympic race and world champs is over two days. So you do two runs one day, you have a position, you wake up, you go again for two runs. And on that second day, the fastest person goes first. And I was in the lead after day one. So I'm number one. So that's fine. I'm, I'm first off, off I go. And then for that very last run, only the top 20 get a run. And it goes 20th to first. So I was still in the lead. So the changing room obviously empties out. Empty, 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 empty until you're the only one there fighting for that place to see 
if you can hold on to that first place. So, so I actually took myself. Yeah, go on. I was going to say, so you went first on the second day and then you had to wait all that time with everybody coming in and out of the changing rooms to then go last. Yeah. No, a really long time to wait. Jeez. Hey. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. I mean, it's really, really tough. So I, you know, I had to go to bed knowing I was in that gold medal position, but you know what? There's still another day of racing. There's still two more runs. I, I didn't even for once imagine myself or even picture myself with a medal never once because it was like I had to do those process goals I had to do the same thing over and over to get that medal so I didn't even think about it um but don't get me wrong there were nerves um and in our sport we have a cameraman right literally at our backside right (laughs) focusing on your feet you know you're kind of squatting down into that sprint start position the cameraman is right there and I remember thinking my legs are shaking my feet are shaking I'm so nervous what's you know the cameraman's focusing in on my feet and I do really remember that memory you don't have in, you don't have that in training do you exactly um so you know that was a very okay switch off um yeah I mean my ta- ta- tactic technique whatever was you know I really didn't listen to any of the sound I didn't listen to the other girls the positions the results I literally put my fingers in my ears when the tannoys were all telling you what was happening the commentating what had happened before me had people changed places had someone had a really bad run had someone shifted up so I actually didn't know who was on that leader's box because again it was like it's not going to affect me it's not going to affect my performance I still have to lie on that sled and be consistent and nail my performance so yeah it was um Obviously, you can imagine there's loads of noise, there's lots of roar, there's cowbells going, there's everything, craziness. But it was really about trying to blank it out and really be that tunnel vision, focus on what I'm going to do. Actually, I've got to push this sled, drive my knees forward. My kind of little thing was eat the ground. So eat the ground up, drive my knees forward, focus on all those things that I would have done on a normal summer's push training session at the university back at home. You know, so you're kind of going back to those really basic things, load on my sled as fast as I can, get the perfect body position, get into that first corner. And then you're just straight into thinking of those corners. Uh, admittedly, I don't really remember the second half of the track. Yeah. Automatic blur. Yeah. yeah. Um, coming over the finish line. The finish line was actually quite far up the straight. So you had to really still keep that position. And for us, it's not like a hundred meter race where you can see where everyone is. I had to wait until I saw all the timing clocks because it's those four runs that get added up. So you might not have had the fastest physical run down. And in fact, I think that fourth run was maybe the third quickest. So you actually see a number three on the very first timing clock, but obviously you might not necessarily mean that you're in third place. You could be in second or fourth or first. So yeah, um, it was only when I got off the sled and uh, I met one of my coaches then. He, everyone obviously knew that I was in first place, but I didn't know. The last so, person there to find out having done yeah, it. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> but sort of taking your helmet half off, which again, I wish now I took it off completely, got my hair out, fluffed myself up, looked nice. Um, you know, it's only when I whispered to him, well, where did I come? And he's the one who says you're Olympic champion. You know, and then there's a huge big scoreboard. And, you know, if you really looked around, you could then see everyone's names. But, you know, in that heat of the moment, you, you don't everyone's just going crazy and wild and cheering and you're not quite sure who they're cheering for because they're just cheering for everyone yeah 
Oh, that's that. What an amazing experience. That's something that you know not many people will get to experience, mm. and that and I I know that will stay with you forever as a as a cherished memory. Yeah. But again, we've spoken before about this, and I know there's other other elite sports people out there that have hit the the very highest point of which they can get to, and that how does it how do you deal with that you know you've been what what we've talked about so far is a sort of eight nine year journey of complete dedication complete focus to get to a point that you're aiming for and you reach that point obviously the the immediate emotion must be pure success joy pride um you know all those real positive things but then there's traditionally this kind of it's not a fall from grace. That's completely the wrong word. But there's this kind of um, the other side of the emotions, the, the the sacrifices, and the they all start to come to a head. And can you kind of give us a picture of what that must have felt like? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I had one, I mean, the, to be fair, the very first emotion was just relief. <laughs> relief that I had finally done it. You yeah. know, relief that I knew I could win this race, and I and I did. You know, so that was actually the first. It was almost like a big sigh of breath. Like, oh. I did it like I knew I could I did it you know so that was the very first emotion and then obviously actually I was just really shy I was just like oh my goodness everyone's looking at me like oh (laughs) now like almost that real practical like oh crap and then yeah obviously you've got that media the press and that real like all these interviews hundreds of them that you're like oh my goodness like yeah I generally like oh I've got Olympic medal like you know that kind of real like doesn't quite hit you um and actually it only really really sunk in and hit me four years later when I was then commentating at the next winter olympics realizing all these athletes were fighting for an olympic medal and oh I've got one of them at home you know it it is really weird to explain that I I was so emotional four years later realizing um but yeah I mean when you came back home like you say, you're sort of in that bubble for quite a while, but I mean, exhaustion hits you. I mean, even at the Olympics, the very next day, you're just hit by exhaustion because it has, it's been almost this four years of every day, like you said, that yes, no, every day. Um, so you're just like phew, empty, empty. Like you, It's like you've got nothing left in you. And yet you're on that high because you're having to be really fun and bubbly for all these interviews you know you're you're doing tv shows you're being invited everywhere you know me being me I just said yes to everything like let's go for this and so I think the reality was actually I remember sitting on the bottom of my parents stairs because actually I'd, I'd at this point rented out my flat my my um yeah my flat that I I owned I rented it out for that winter to earn some money um, so I'd sort of technically someone was still in that renting my flat. So I was back in with my mum and dad. I remember sitting on the bottom of their stairs, crying, crying through exhaustion. I actually had shingles because, you know, I was, you know, immunity, everything was just so low. So I can remember feeling ill from that. And I remember looking at my bank balance in the red thinking, oh, my goodness, I have absolutely no money. I'm absolutely skint. It's a few weeks or whatever passed since the Olympics. Um, Everyone's I remember reading these articles saying that I would have become a millionaire overnight and all this sponsorship and this and that. And I'm like, what? I'm in the red. I've got zero money. I'd spent my money because 
you know, I was invited up to London all the time. So that's like nearly £100 a pop from Bath up and down to London. Staying in hotels because you've got an event that you've been invited to with red carpets, buying dresses. You know, I wasn't big enough or I didn't sort of have an agent at that point to make sure you can get all these free stuff. Um, so actually, it was totally the opposite to what people think of, you know, I wanted to be seen to be seen, but there was a massive cost to that. And yeah, at that point, I hadn't sort of started doing corporate talks or, or earn money off of the medal. Um, so yeah, I think it was quite a kind of, oh, wow, actually, there's quite a big difference to winning a medal in a winter sport to a medal in a summer sport and not having big sponsorship deals. And I think the kind of maybe the, the, the downside is that the next winter, the, the next Olympics was London. So even when we did approach uh, con sponsors, companies, no one wanted to sponsor me because in two years time, there was a summer games and they all wanted the summer athlete with the big name in London. So um, yeah, that was quite um, an eye opener. But like you come back to, okay, never mind, big deal. It's not like I did it for money. You know, it comes back to that. Well, who cares? I have an Olympic medal and whether I'm, in debt in the red in the bank or not actually it still boils down to none of that matters like yes it would be handy but you know what no one can take away that medal from you and you've still got that passion and that drive and you know that that thing inside of you um that's more important than anything yeah sounds like there was a bit it must well it must have been quite hard for somebody that's so driven to come back from the Olympics and to feel completely empty and probably to have no goal. You've had this yeah. fixed target for such a long time to suddenly have, okay, what, what's, what is, what am I going to do now? Yeah. I think that it is a hard thing for, for any athlete, anyone who's really strived to achieve, even if it's, you know, someone who's finally doing their first half marathon or, you know, getting to do a, a full marathon or some big competition, there's always that real emptiness once you've done it. So you're right. What what now? Okay. Everything else seems pretty meaningless now. Um, I mean, I took off a bit of time because I really wanted to make the most out of doing things, going to events. And I knew that that summer training, I, I couldn't give it my all. Um, and I took off half a competition season. And I can remember, you know, getting back into it. Um, I did have that drive. I still did have that passion. Um, I still wanted to achieve because I felt like I had my golden formula. I felt like, okay, I now know how to win a race. All of that that I've been working for to peak at that time with all of the small little things that I had done worked. So I really felt like I actually know how to win races now and I can smash this. But it all coincided then with um, a new performance director coming on board. Um, my sled was a prototype sled. And all of a sudden, there had been a lot more work. McLaren Technologies had come involved, um, the Formula One. And actually, that performance director wouldn't let me have the newest, fastest sleds. And bottom line, basically, I, I physically couldn't win the races anymore. Um, some of my races, I was barely getting into the top 20 because all the other nations had brought out their faster sleds that they maybe weren't brave enough to bring out for the Olympics because they didn't have time. So all of a sudden there was a massive shift in technology and um, the equipment and everyone's performances went poof. 
and mine never did. And yet I was still the fastest sprinter, you know, on the circuit. I still physically was the best. I had the best line. So, you know, when you're watching someone, but actually my graph, the data went downhill, no speed, no nothing. And, you know, for me, I was like, that's the sled. You know, I can remember even the German coaches coming up to me saying, what's up? What's up with your equipment? You know, but that was really, really tough. So let's just say after, you know, a year and a half, along with injuries plaguing me and just being in constant pain, the fact that I physically couldn't win the races when I knew I could and mentally I knew I could, you know, that was enough for me to then just retire. Um, in hindsight, it's my biggest regret to have not really fight, you know, to really fight for it. Um, I knew I could probably go to the papers. I knew I could probably make a big fuss out of it. And I didn't want to look like sour grapes. You know, there was a new development squad coming through. They needed a medal to come through to those newest girls. So the focus was in on them. Um, my medal had enabled that funding to exist because all of us, if we know what it, uh, skeleton had to bring home a medal in those Vancouver games, otherwise the sport would have gone. So, you know, that was a massive pressure for all of us, females, males, to, to bring home a medal. Uh, and that enabled the, the funding to be able to continue for the next generation. So, yeah, I mean, it was all a bit um, hard, a bit messy in that sense, a side of it that I never really talk about. Um, and I think in the end, I just thought, um, you know, there's another big chapter of life out there. I have my medal. Yes, I truly believe I could go and get another medal. And that is my biggest regret that, you know, I really wanted to be that first person to bring home two medals, but I physically couldn't because equipment, um, the powers to be, the politics, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't. So, you know, I kind of walked away knowing that I had decided to retire. You know, that was my, okay, I'm done. I'm now whatever age I was, 30, you know, my sister at that point was married for however many years you know a little child my little niece you know and you're suddenly like actually I've put all of that side of my life on hold for so long you know you suddenly start thinking oh maybe I should start the next chapter then you know like yeah I got excuses to yourself but um yeah so you mentioned going yeah and not to be able to walk away. sorry yeah you mentioned going into into retirement what attributes from from your elite uh, sort of sporting life have you kind of taken with you into retirement because I know you've got your own personal training business and mm -hmm. obviously you do corporate events and, and motivational speaking and things but what, what attributes let's go back to lockdown what attributes from being an elite athlete have you taken forwards that have really benefited you through through lockdown and, and in yeah. various times yeah I think that that athlete in you never disappears that control the controllables I have to remind myself yeah. <laughs> when I've got screaming kids and I'm like oh okay control what you can control here you yeah, know like yeah. daily life um I think with lockdown trying to keep good routines um like you say when you're trying to juggle being a full-time mom of two small boys under the age of um three well four um yeah trying to balance setting up a business personal training trying to keep everything going juggling everything writing a book that's meant to have been finished in a few weeks time you know all these things that you put so much pressure on yourself to do um and and yeah just trying to stay focused I definitely find it harder a hundred percent there are definitely days that I'm just like oh my goodness and I do get stressed I do have 
those anxiety, you know, that kind of like, oh, I can't do this, like, like everyone else. Um, But then you're right, you take a deep breath and you've got to like, right, I can't do all of this at once. Let's focus on one thing. And if that's just the fact that my mission today was to clean the oven or to sort through the pile of clothes, like be happy that you did that. And I think anyone with small kids can understand that. Okay, if you just did the washing today, that's quite an achievement. Um, so sometimes it is, it's bringing down those expectations to really small little things, or it's, you know, it really is, okay, for this next hour of peace and quiet in the house, because I've got one napping and one's watching Nemo on the TV, I've got an hour of quiet here, what can I do in this one hour? Okay, I'll open up my computer and I will work on this one thing. And then I know, okay, I've got to wake up the little one and this person, you know, so chaos consumes. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's the kind of um, the takeaway from everyone and and just trying to keep active, isn't it? It's even when it's freezing cold and it takes an age to get kids wrapped up in warm stuff, just still going out, whether it's just walking around the block of the village for, you know, half an hour. You know, that's enough to get those endorphins flowing, to feel good, um, get some fresh air in the lungs. Yeah, it's really nice to hear you kind of say, you know, to share that, you know, that you have days where everything does become too much. And it's great, you know, for everybody listening. Yes, you can you, you can be a gold medal Olympian, but you can still have days where you find stuff hard. It's being human, isn't it? And, you know, you know, accepting that it's OK not to be OK sometimes and to just take a step back, take a deep breath and control what you can control. Um, yeah. So. I think we've been talking for for longer than I'd I'd planned and I could probably talk to you for hours longer, but I'm going to have to wrap it up. But for me, that was really, that was really awesome. I know awesome gets used a lot. I use it a lot, but that was genuinely awesome talking to you because we gave a real insight. It's not often that you get to speak to people, you know, on a one-to-one who've got the experiences you've got and who are happy to share in a really nice kind of eloquent way to kind of really show what life is like at that top end of a sport and it's a really interesting one because it's not a kind of it's not a mainstream sport that will be featured on BBC Sport once a week it's one of those sports where you don't really see the dedication and the and the sacrifice that you would have put yourself through to get to that gold medal and to hear you talk about that, it's, it's really inspiring. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will take take away a lot of really positive things from, from this podcast. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Genuinely, really appreciate it. Um, tell us a bit more about your book before before it's, uh, before it's we call off. Yeah, um, so I'm writing it for kind of, a, let's just say, 15-year-olds upwards. Um, yep. Really for young athletes who really want to strive and yeah, try and reach that high performance. So it's my top tips and lessons that I've learned along the way as an athlete, obviously going towards the medal. Uh, you know, there'll be chapters on mindset, barriers, teamwork, um, fear, preparation, all those kind of juicy things. So yeah, it's got I've got some great quotes from other athletes. Um, it, it'll be like a tool book. So I'm even designing and drawing my own pages that you can literally write in the book and do almost like practical things to, to help you. So yeah, really excited about it hopefully get it out before the summer olympics in the next few months um yeah it's a bit of a working process but it's nearly done it's nearly finished nice well done well amy thank you very much again for coming on uh it's been really awesome and and, um yeah we'll keep in touch and and i'm sure i'll speak to you soon Pleasure. Uh, take care thanks amy bye
so guys if you've been listening to the podcast please share it around friends and family and for people you you think that might be interested by it and obviously if you feel like you can please do leave a review thanks for listening and we'll be bringing you some more content next week bye everyone